What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional. You can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Creature Feature, a production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and I like to look at the brains of people and animals. I may be looking at some brains right now. Today on the show, Gobble Gobble. No, we're not talking about turkeys this time, but the weird and wild eating behaviors of people and animals. We're talking gluttonous grubs who gobble on gastropods, animals who store their leftovers like their leather face on steroids, animal chefs and foodies with very peculiar tastes. Discover these animals and more as we answer the age-old question, is eating civet poop a crappy thing to do? So what sets us apart from animals? It's our gourmet tastes, right? Unlike our lowly animal cousins, we prepare our food, season it, add some garnish, delicately use a utensil to put it in our mouths, and poop it out like civilized humans. But maybe animals aren't so animalistic with their eating habits. Sure, animals may not have mastered the art of cooking things, but they can get pretty close with their fancy food prep. Joining me today for this culinary creature feature are the hosts of Savor, a podcast about the culture of food, eating, cooking, masticating, that means chewing, you perverts. So welcome now to Annie Reese and Lauren Vogelbaum. Hello. Thank Hi. you. Yes. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you guys. I think with evolutionary biology, there's 
it's basically food and sex. And right now we're going to talk about the food part. <laughs> All right. <laughs> when we think about animal eating behavior, sometimes it's restricted to, oh, predators chasing down prey and how awesome that is to see a lion just like totally take down a gazelle. But I think there are other eating habits that are really fascinating and things that people wouldn't really imagine animals are capable of. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've seen my cats play with their food for sure. So <laughs> yeah. And I often feel like I'm being more animalistic in how I am eating than perhaps oh. <laughs> accepted in public. Yeah. I, you know, I, I never feel I never feel less human than when I'm attempting to eat a salad. <laughs> <laughs> You know, yes. I actually crack open chicken bones to eat the bone marrows because it seems kind yeah. of like a waste. Yeah, and you know, I don't let—I don't even let my dog do that because it's dangerous for the dog to eat the <laughs> chicken bones. But here I am, like right. eating sharp shards of bones. I'm sure that'll never go wrong for me. Oh no. yeah, no, you're gonna be fine. You're, you're fine so far, so <laughs> that's that's a plus. So on your podcast, you guys like to talk about the culture of food and cooking. And I think it is a huge linchpin of human culture. It's something that is so necessary and so integral to society that it just becomes part of everyday life. And I think this is true of animals, especially our close relatives in the primate family. So first I want to talk about capuchin monkeys, which are really cute. I sent you guys a slideshow since I'm talking to you virtually, so you get to see these adorable little monkeys. Oh, they are so cute. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. All right. That's... <laughs> I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm back. <laughs> Look at their little fingers. Okay. All right. Let that sink yeah. in how cute they are. What you're looking at are wild black striped or also known as bearded capuchin monkeys who use stone bludgeons and anvils to crack open nuts and their behaviors go way beyond just simple tool use. So these monkeys are found in the tropical wetlands and savannas of Brazil. They're really cute. They have a penchant for cracking open nuts. As you can see, they're tan with black markings. They're very furry. They kind of got Eddie Munster vibes with their little hairdo. That really high widow's peak. Uh -huh. <laughs> yep, I see it. <laughs> so researchers have found evidence of old stone tools that shows they have been cracking nuts for over 3,000 years. They even have special adaptations such as stronger leg and back muscles to allow them to carry heavy stones. So are you, oh, wow. are you guys fans of, do you guys like cracking open nuts, like getting the, the nuts and shells, especially over the holidays? Or, or are you sort of let someone else do that? That was a family tradition of mine growing up. We would always have um, a little handheld nutcracker, not like the fancy ones that come to life sometimes and chase you around in a, a ballet manner. But yeah, mm -hmm. just, just the little silver handheld ones and a bowl of nuts on the table. It's uh, still a big tradition for me, although no one else in my household has ever dealt with that before. So they're like, so there's always, I, it's just me. And then them looking really confused and hurting themselves. <laughs> <laughs> me and my dad are sort of the, the nutcrackers of the family. Uh, and it is funny because, yeah, we have one of those little metal nutcrackers. The actual, the fancy nutcrackers, when I was a kid, I was like, okay, I'll use these to crack nuts. You know, broke the nutcracker. They aren't, apparently, <laughs> despite their name saying they're nutcrackers for cracking nuts, they're actually nut get broken by nutters. <laughs> 
they're not good at cracking nuts. It destroys them. It's the name is so misleading. It's kind of an oxymoron. Destroyed by the very nut that you put in their jaws. Oh, that they were meant to crack. There's some Gosh. deep lesson to be learned there. <laughs> I'm sure there is. Some truth. <laughs> Such as maybe a we should. Uh, all of us. I mean, if we had a capuchin to do this, obviously they would be able to. So, not only do capuchins learn to crack open nuts, they also know which tools are the best for the nut job, and it depends <laughs> on the nuts' ripeness. So, cashews are one of their favorite nuts. Do you guys like cashews? Oh yeah, I love cashews. Buttery, delicious. The monkeys they love the cashews. The fresher cashews are softer and easier to crack open, but they're covered with a fleshy lining known as the mesocarp, which actually contains a caustic defensive substance. So even though the fresh nuts are easier to crack open, the monkeys will actually use larger stones to open them. So they're more likely to smash away the caustic lining. And so this indicates that they have an awareness that sure, these these less ripe nuts are easier to crack open, but I'm still going to smash it with a huge rock so that I just blast away that caustic lining. Conversely, the older nuts are less toxic. They're a little harder to crack open, but still they don't use those huge stones. They use a slightly more appropriately sized stone tool, just enough to crack open the shells. Because at that point, they don't have to worry about that toxic mesocarp that the nut has grown to protect it from those very, very predators that wants to eat it. Oh, wow. That's, That's impressive. Yeah, I wouldn't figure out how to do that. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> I'm, I'm like the first person to go down in the zombie apocalypse. I would not be able to feed myself in the wild. <laughs> I mean, it is interesting because plants do develop these defensive strategies against their potential predators like monkeys or like humans. And we are in an arms race to figure out how to get past those defensive strategies so we can eat them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of our favorite topics over on Savor is how a lot of those defensive strategies wind up being delicious to humans. Like, we're like suckers. Like, we like that. Like, <laughs> onions. Like, sorry about it. Like, we we decided that. Make we- me cry all you want. I'm still going <laughs> to saute you up. <laughs> <laughs> The onions just didn't know we're masochists and we like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or hot peppers or, yeah, all mm, of these yeah. things. I love it. These mm. plants are like, I'll hurt you. And we're like, oh, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> the hotter, the better, baby. <laughs> that says a lot about humanity. <laughs> Another species of capuchin, the white-faced capuchins, will wrap toxic caterpillars and fruits in leaves and rub them against soil to rub off the surface toxins so that they can kind of neutralize them and just eat them, which I think is what's so fascinating to me about that is that indicates a level of trial and error that I would have long been dissuaded against. Like if I ate a caterpillar or a fruit that gave me a real sick stomach or throwing up or bad bathroom times, I'd just, I'd just not have that fruit anymore. But I love yeah. that they like, well, now if I wrap it in a leaf, does that make it better? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that too. Very uh, scientist kind yeah. of in a lab. Yeah. Oh, let me try this way. Now that I'm saying it, I do. F- maybe I do do that because like, like with, when, I, when I eat food that just destroys me, like dairy products or uh, Chipotle or, or anything that 
uh, is has flavor basically my stomach goes like no 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 oh, no no, no, no. <laughs> um well but see i i love flavor and so i just deal with it and so i find out ways like now if i eat this but with ginger ale maybe that'll that'll work that'll please the stomach gods oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. I have um I have a lot of friends who will only eat like pasta with red sauce with a glass of milk. Because oh, interesting. the acidity of the tomato sauce, like they they it's delicious, but their right. stomach can't take it. And I think it's the grossest thing I've ever heard of in my entire life. <laughs> I'm like, this is what more Parmesan cheese is for. Like right. you can neutralize this in a way that isn't a glass of milk. But Yeah, I don't like I don't like to just drink milk, but apparently if you're into spicy foods but then it destroys you, you should drink milk that, that neutralizes the spicy food, right? Hypothetically, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um this is also hypothetically why people serve a ranch or blue cheese dressing with uh, like hot wings because oh, right. Really helps uh, soothe you down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now we were talking before we started recording that we have a mutual hatred for ranch and mayonnaise, which yes. I'm really excited about because I think <laughs> I I consider myself someone interested in food, and I get a lot of flack for my hatred of mayonnaise. But it's not a food. It is. It, it's <laughs> it's like a food <laughs> lotion. It's a food emollient that to me is disturbing. It's like, oh, I got to lotion up this sandwich so it'll slide down my throat better. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, preach. <laughs> I'm I'm mayo neutral, uh, but I, yeah. I got to take and, a Annie's side. nodding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can't have this. There's no neutrality. <laughs> this mayonnaise has been debate. sitting over here. Mm -hmm. But uh, why do you not like mayonnaise? I'm not somebody who normally cares about texture, but it's like the combination of texture and a temperature. Like it's something about it being like cool and like slimy. <laughs> I don't know. It, and it just feels like it coats and it's greasy uh. and oily and ugh. Cool and slimy. <laughs> I think that should, be, that should be the, the new branding of mayonnaise is cool and sliming, a refreshing gelatinous <laughs> treat. They should lean into it. <laughs> so chimps, as you may know, like to dip tools into ant and termite colonies to collect insects to eat. But sort of like spicy food, there are spicy ants that like to bite you. So when they get bitten up by aggressive army ants, they'll actually perch themselves just above the ant colony by hanging from nearby tree limbs or trunks so they can keep dipping into the ant colony without getting stung, which I think is an interesting, it's sort of like how humans, like we develop these strategies to deal with spicy foods that we still want to eat. These chimps figure out, okay, so these ants get mad when I eat them and they bite me. Well, I'll just be off the ground then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got some respect for that. I wonder if the ants ever bite their tongues, though. There are certain animals that certainly try. <laughs> they keep on bite fighting all the way down. But I, I think if you're a little mm. ant and if you're getting chimps ha do have those really nice grinding teeth because they're omnivores. So I wonder if they just kind of get ground up. Uh, but yeah, maybe yeah. They, they may get a get a few tongue bites, but maybe that's just spiciness. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I, I have to admit that I'm asking this question because uh, I've definitely been bitten on the tongue by ants before. Oh um, really? Because yeah, I I did I did the not smart thing and left like a picnic plate on the ground oh, no. by my uh -oh. side and then like just kind of reached down and like took like a slice of grilled squash and popped <laughs> it right into my mouth and it oh. and I was and I was like what's this what's this 
kind of acidic <laughs> flavor coming from them. And I was like, ah, it's ants! Ah! Ah! This, this peak ant flavor. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> this anti kind of, oh, dude. Yeah, I, I was like, that was not my it. most... Sort of wiggly, <laughs> bitey, leggy mm-hmm. flavor. When I was a kid, I uh, ate insects because I had no concept that you didn't do that. In fact, I was actually ahead of my time because there's no reason we shouldn't eat insects. Right. But uh, yeah. I, I would yeah. eat ants. And I got to say, of the insects, they do have a nice flavor because they're kind of peppery. And as long as they don't bite you, you know, which I'm sure is a little unpleasant, but they, they do have that nice peppery aftertaste. I, I love that you're a connoisseur Yeah, <laughs> in this way. Yeah. <laughs> I think the only insects that I've ever eaten intentionally were crickets. And really? those just kind of taste, you know, kind of, I don't know, like... Like what? Like um, they, just, they, they sort of. I'm like they sort of taste crickety. Like just a little bit. Like yeah. like, like 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 savory kind of. <laughs> that sort of yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. cricketness. Like... Did it? What was the texture? <laughs> were they? Was it? Could you feel the legs, or were they just sort of crunchy? Um, you could kind of. I, I I've only I've basically only ever eaten them in like like stunt food kind of ways, like when they're sort of like whole and fried or something like that, and so. So yeah, there's they're a little bit chitiny, um, uh, but I mean, like if you've ever eaten a whole shrimp, like a little baby shrimp or something like that, yeah. it's basically the same thing. Yeah, um, it's not too pokey. Like it's and, and like really, once you get over like looking the little dude in the eyes and going like, I'm gonna eat this insect. <laughs> like once once you get over that moment, yeah. uh, it's it's fine. Yeah, I mean, I've had them like flavored with ranch stuff <gasps> like that. Oh boy, <laughs> cricket ranch. I'm out of that. I, the cricket I'm fine with, but the ranch has got to go. I know. I, you know, honestly, I would rather eat a cricket than eat ranch. No joke. Not a bit. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. Me too. So speaking of ants, did you guys know that adult ants can't eat solid foods? No. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah. They're, so their digestive system isn't built for solid foods. And they, I mean, it, you, they've got that little tiny hourglass waste. They literally cannot f- get food through it. That's too big. So they have to obtain all their food in the form of liquids. Often it's honeydew or regurgitate from ant larvae. And there's a species of ant called the Phaedospidonia that places food into a special chin shelf that's on the larva. So imagine the larva, which are these little maggoty, wormy guys, and they've got, they're pretty pudgy. They've got a little shelf right under their mouth that the adult ants just tuck a little piece of food in. And then the larva will spit enzymes onto the food. And often the food is like a little uh, fly or another little insect that the ants have scavenged or killed. And then they will digest them externally, which is a frequent behavior in the animal kingdom of just spitting your enzymes onto an unfortunate prey item and turning it into a soup before you slurp it back up. So once the larva does this, the ants and larva share the fly soup together. It's really cute little family activity. Yeah. Oh, that's, I, I also, like, I, I've heard, you know, like, I've seen, like, the, the fly, right, where Jeff Goldblum right. is, you know, right. like, like spitting on donuts and then slurping up sure. the, do- right, absolutely, uh-huh. um, all of those good Cronenberg documentaries. <laughs> uh, but I but I like that this ant, like, farm, like, it's, it's like, chef, this is what I'd like you to prepare today. And <laughs> <laughs> I'll just put it right here for your consideration. Yeah. <laughs> It's it is kind of neat because the kids are cooking for the adults in a way. Right. My plan for when I have children is to train them from birth to cook things for me 
Like as soon as their chubby little yeah. hands can hold a knife, like, all right, you're cooking. You're in the kitchen. <laughs> I like that plan. Yeah, yeah. I guess Annie's family has done that to her, though. She's the one who cooks their entire Thanksgiving meal. Oh, really? Yeah. Really, it falls upon you. I need you. to rethink something. <laughs> yeah. I, I was that innocent larva. <laughs> yeah, now you can go like, what am I, a larva to you? Yes. <laughs> That'll really show them. <laughs> I'll make them listen to this and be like, uh-huh. see, 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 evolutionary biology is like years of family therapy. <laughs> That's true. This Aww. is just saving me a lot of money. <laughs> Did cooking give us a leg up on evolution? Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human is a book by primatologist Richard Ringham, which makes the case that cooking food gave us the nutritional benefits necessary to allow for our physical evolution from apes to modern humans. Cooking food not only makes it tastier, it helps increase its nutritional efficiency, making it easier to chew and digest. The smaller streamlined digestive system of Homo erectus, our evolutionary ancestors, may have developed as a result of cooking. This more efficient digestive system then allowed for larger brain growth. In particular, cooked tubers, which are root vegetables, may have given our ancestors a nutritional boost year-round. But the archaeological evidence doesn't necessarily paint such a clear picture. In order for cooking to have influenced the evolutionary path of Homo erectus, it would have been invented over 1.8 million years ago. The earliest archaeological evidence of humanoid-made fires was only 250,000 years ago. Of course, this doesn't mean fires didn't predate these records, we just have no evidence of them. But I do wonder, given the number of animals who manipulate their food, could we have mastered some other form of food preparation, such as fermentation or grinding up food, of which we have no evidence? That's definitely a question for someone who knows more about archaeology than me. When we return, open up those fridges, we're going to pick over some leftovers. Well, the holidays are upon us. You know what makes a great gift? Foot coverings. Sorry, I meant socks. Bomba socks are some of the best foot coverings, I mean socks, available. Most people don't ask for socks, but that's just because they haven't had the experience of wearing a Bomba sock, which feels like a soft koala hug. I have my own pairs of Bomba socks. They are truly some of the most comfortable socks around. They're form-fitted to my foot, giving arch support in a way that I didn't even know I needed in a sock. They come in really fun patterns. I have some Sesame Street socks that are adorable. There are Bomba socks for a variety of activities. I got super soft merino wool socks for hiking. I even got some dress socks. And have you ever noticed that annoying toe seam that most socks have? That little ridge on top that scrapes under your toe and it makes it awful and you want to throw off your socks and your shoes and just go naked? Well, Bombas got rid of it, so they're smooth across the whole top of your foot. Bombas socks are perfect if you want to give someone's feet the gift of comfort. Go to bombas.com creature and get 20% off any purchase during their big holiday sale, November 18th through December 5th. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash creature for 20% off. Bombas dot com slash creature. As you pick your way through Thanksgiving leftovers, or perhaps the leftover pizza that's been drying out in your fridge, why don't we go on a little trip to Imagination Station? 
Imagine you're out on a nice starry night. Maybe you're a cool teenager out on the town in your green 1950s Buick Roadmaster, hanging out with your hot date driving up to the top of Makeout Point. You hear a weird noise outside, a sort of sniff, sniff, sniffing, and a scratching. You make some corny joke to your date about there being a monster. Your date says, that's not funny. And just before you make out, suddenly a giant shrew breaks through the window of your Buick Roadmaster. A giant shrew? That's not so scary, right? Well, just as you're about to laugh off this oversized fuzzball, it delivers a swift bite to your leg and you feel an icy chill run through your body. Your limbs go limp, useless, as your body forfeits to the toxin rendering you completely paralyzed. As your date shrieks in terror, the shrew drags your limp, helpless body along into the forest and into its den. At this point, you're hoping for a quick death, but oh no, this shrew has other other plans for you. To your horror, the shrew starts to nibble on you, just a bit, and then it takes another bite. You still can't move, you just watch as it munches your toes off. Then it leaves you to wonder what sort of god would allow this to happen. It returns hours later to nibble on you some more, maybe a finger here, an ear there, and that's when you realize you're the leftovers! Ooh. Oh my god! <laughs> All right. So, have you got? Did you guys know that there was a actually a creature feature called the Killer Shrews back in the 1950s? I had no idea. No. No, me either. But it sounds like there should have been. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> It's a 1959 indie film called The Killer Shrews. The movie poster is a shrew tail running over a woman's high heel, which is great. It's uh-huh. one of those one of those B creature feature movies that actually I, I kind of based the theme of the podcast on. And I, I love this movie. It's there. I think people get stranded on an island. If I remember correctly, they get stranded on an island. It is full of scientists who are trying to solve world hunger by just shrinking down people. It's kind of like that Matt Damon movie that just that came out of <laughs> A little while ago, where, mm-hmm. okay, so we've got world hunger. We have the technology to shrink things, I guess, but instead of making food bigger, <laughs> they make people smaller. And they... Mm-hmm. Sure. But, of course, the science goes wrong, as it always does, as we should know from movies to never try to do science, because it'll go horribly wrong. And it makes the shrews really huge and monsters, and they start killing everyone and killing everything on the island. And they try to escape the shrews. And of course, if you dare try to go outside of the hero's narrative, you're going to get eaten by one of these shrews. And what's interesting is obviously the the huge giant factor is not true about shrews, but the murderous venomous thing is actually very accurate. So I want to talk about the Blarina brevicauda, which is a venomous shrew. Now, the shrew family includes some of the only mammals that are venomous. And the North American short-tailed shrew, found in Northeast North America, are a species of shrew with an overall venomous personality and bite. And they're just, they're awful little monsters. They're pretty cute. If you look at that picture, they're, they're not... They don't look that scary. They look like a little mole. They have cute little fuzzy bodies. They are dark gray fur, a little fluffy tail. Yeah, yeah, a little little fuzz tube. Yeah. Yeah, fuzz noodle, <laughs> fuzz tube. I like that. 
They do have those beady little eyes. That is sort of a hint at their personality. And they have a pink little nose. And so they are cute, but not if you're one of their mini victims. So they are voracious <laughs> little monsters who consume up to three times their body weight a day, which sounds really impressive. It is. They do only weigh about one ounce. But still, I mean, if you scaled that up, that would be like eating what, like five turkeys a day? How much does a turkey weigh? Oh, uh, I mean, there's a whole range. I think generally 12, <laughs> you know, 10 to 12 pounds. <laughs> I, it, would, it, would be, it would be a lot. If I, I definitely don't eat like one of me a day, let alone three of me. Right, so exactly, that, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah it'd, be, it'd be like eating, you know, t- 10 turkeys? I'm I'm going to say the math is right on that one. Uh, so they eat insects, earthworms, snails, salamanders, voles, mice, and actually other shrews if they're small enough. And its salivary glands contain a paralytic toxin that can immobilize its prey. And unfortunately for its prey, that is not a quick death. They like to store their paralyzed victims in their den and snack on them for days until their prey eventually dies from its injuries. And so this strategy sounds really unnecessarily cruel, but this allows them fresh (laughs) food for long periods of time, up to 15 days, which is horrific. Kind of want to just give them little tiny fridges so they don't have to be so insane. (laughs) Yeah, because their metabolism is so fast, having that late night snack is can make the difference for their survival, even if it is a horrific torture show going on. Yeah, gosh. I mean, like, I guess we do that with plants. We're like, ah, ha, tomato. Like, I will take one of you today and one of you tomorrow. <laughs> um, but we don't think of plants as being conscious. So like, it's not that big of a deal. This is reminding me of Jurassic Park, of the of the compries. The compisaurus. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh. They also, I mean, you know, again in this documentary, right? Yeah, <laughs> right, right. The documentaries, no, <laughs> the classic documentary, yes. Jurassic Park and the Fly. Yeah, I, I think and Killer Shrew, Killer Shrew. Yes, that one is actually a lot closer to reality than one might think. It's one of the more realistic B movie. I, th- I think, other than the whole shrinking people to solve world hunger, which I think is silly. You obviously make giant or you know you 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 make a giant shrew right and then you eat the shrew there world hunger solved not really sure what shrew meat <laughs> tastes like though might that might be a bit of a gamble but one thing scientists have done speaking of mad scientists is they've <laughs> synthesized shrew venom into a substance called sorocidin which is hoped to be used as a sort of botox alternative which is used to treat migraines myofacial pain neuromuscular diseases and of course also wrinkles now this is still in the works they haven't actually put this on the market yet but i i actually get a pretty bad tmj pain the transmandibular joint pain in my jaw oh, and no, yeah i would love to inject some shrew venom just to see what it does <laughs> uh right yeah i uh and and it's just a different type of gross than thinking about like like botulism bacteria uh creating your treatment yes i so i like this you're changing it up yeah, yeah I, testing things out I feel like I would trust, I think I'd trust shrew venom a little more than botulism because shrew, a shrew bite might be kind of nasty for a human, but it can't, it doesn't generally cause much harm to people. It's, but botulism, it can, it can 
do a doozy on a human. So I don't know. I kind of want to go with the shrew venom. And the great, the best part is you don't need to invest in needles because you can just get a shrew and then tease it and it'll bite you. Oh, so much cuter. So much cuter than Clostridium botulinum. I love this. I like that a shrew attack is being described as cute. <laughs> Can you imagine going to a doctor's office and they, they have their latex gloves on and they unwrap one of those sort of medical looking things with the, the medical tissue. And then there's just a, this shrew, live shrieking shrew in there frantically flopping around. And it's like, well, here's your treatment. Oh, it would we just be... leave you in the room. I don't know. Good luck. <laughs> See if you can tame this shrew. Oh, oh, oh no. <laughs> Well, that would be an interesting doctor's appointment for sure. <laughs> now, I have to ask you guys, do you keep secret food stashes at, at your homes? Oh, yes. every, everywhere. My home, yes. my desk, my purse. Like, mm-hmm. I'm essentially like the mother of a five-year-old, but the five-year-old is me. And yeah. I just have to eat, like, constantly. So, like, yeah, I always have snacks. Yeah, secret snacks. I I am mm. a big fan of secret snacks. I like to... Tuck. Usually, what happens though is I'll tuck things away in my purse, and then it kind of gets pulverized over time. And then by the time I remember that I put a snack in there, it's just turned into like cookie dust, which I I do eat. I still eat it. I'm not saying I don't eat it, but it <laughs> it has sort of become worn away by the time and the the movement of the purse has turned it into a sort of crumble rather than a whole bar or a whole cookie. Oh yeah. I've destroyed many a granola bar the same way. Scientists can't explain what happens once you put something in your purse. <laughs> well, granola bars. <laughs> it's a mystery bars, to us all. <laughs> granola bars kind of explode on contact. I don't think you have to do much to make them turn into dust. Like you touch one and it sort of just mm-hmm. atomizes. Yeah. That seems to be their purpose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a faulty design, perhaps. It becomes vapor immediately. Mm-hmm. Granola vapor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which actually, you should not never breathe in granola vapor. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> You'll get you'll get granola lung. <laughs> Nobody wants that. Nobody. I want to talk about another animal who likes to store leftovers in a pretty cruel way. This is the Eleanor's falcon. And I also have a picture Ooh. of that for you guys to check out. And it is a it likes to keep a larder of live prey, but it goes about it in a much less scientific way than the shrew. So Eleanor's falcon is a medium sized falcon found in southern southeast Europe and North Africa. And they like to winter in Madagascar, which is these are some hoity toity falcons. So (laughs) typically they eat insects, but during autumn bird migration, they enjoy a smorgasbord of smaller birds, which includes swifts and hoopoos. These are the little, little birds that just make great snacks for these falcons. And since the falcons don't have refrigerators and they like fresh meat, they just shove their bird victims into rock crevices and save them for later. So I have another picture in that slide deck for you where it's a bird in bird prison just awaiting (laughs) the falcon to return to eat it. It, It's very sad. But yeah, you see, he's just kind of tucked in a little little hole in the rock and it's a tight squeeze so he can't really get out. (laughs) Sometimes they'll even pluck their prey's wings and tail feathers and then just toss them in a big hole. Because then they can't fly out of the hole, and it's just at that point, I think they're mocking them. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This. 
Okay, see, I was I was down with the shrew thing. I was like, look, I understand. <laughs> you want to keep your food fresh. Right. But like, and, and you know, and it's not your fault that you're venomous. Like you just, yeah, that's just what you do. Mm-hmm. But this is on, this is intentional. <laughs> this is on purpose. And this is premeditated. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, this way they'll have fresh bird meat for themselves and for their chicks later. Uh, so there, huh. it, it runs in the family. It's it's one of the things that brings family together is just torturing and murdering birds. <laughs> I think that's a is that a good summation? So. <laughs> is that a good summation of Thanksgiving? Actually, the the bird actually bird murder and torture holiday. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially if you're dealing with like a turducken or something. Oh, that's deboning geez. three birds and stuffing one inside that. I mean, that's a mm. yeah. And really, what is that all about except you feeling like you've got some power? Yeah, I really... <laughs> how far can I push the limits? <laughs> yeah, because those things, I, I can't imagine those taste very good. They're a nightmare to prepare because the meat would cook at different rates. So I don't I, I don't quite understand I, how you would do that. Do you guys know, have you ever tried that? Like, does it actually taste good, a turducken, or does it just... I've never... Oh, I've, I've never made one. I've never had one. Um, I, uh... I I don't I don't really understand how you're supposed to cook it and right and have it come out like good at all because like it's hard to cook a single bird and have it be like juicy and nice and I don't yeah. know apparently there's like layered layers of stuffing involved that are supposed to uh offset the 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 moisture issue. Yeah, like if but, you leave a know. turkey in the oven like one second too long, it turns into chalk. <laughs> so now I'm supposed to stuff a duck inside and see how that works. It, it's just I yeah. think it's just I think you you guys hit the nail on the head. I think it's about showing how good at murdering we are. We're like, well, we've got this turkey. Let's see how many more birds we can stuff inside. Like I killed ten animals to make this dish. <laughs> It's a total power play. It is. It is. It is. It is. Supposedly in like the 1700s in France, this one guy invented, I don't know if he ever cooked it, but he invented like a, I think it's like a 17 bird yes. stack. <laughs> it it went from like a buzzard on the outside to like this little wren all the way on the inside. Yeah. Because we, France. I actually had Catherine Spears on of the Smart Mouth podcast and we, we talked about the these like horrifying... <laughs> Some of these really horrible dishes that we had in history. And yeah, that that's it, it's like it stuffed a it was a large bird that then you stuffed it with like a turkey and you stuffed that with like a guinea fowl and then a, a pheasant <laughs> and then a quail. And then a. I think at the very end, you're like shoving a little bee in there or something. I'm not sure. But yeah, it's <laughs> it's a nightmare. I, I don't. You know, I think that there is a certain, at a certain level, predators, and that includes humans, we do seem to relish in just being evil. So speaking of which, I want to talk about a cute little caterpillar who is a pretty, pretty nasty little customer. Now, you guys had a whole episode about escargot. I do not eat escargot, but when I was a child, I would eat raw snails because like I said, I didn't, I, I didn't follow <laughs> your, the man's rules about not eating this animal or don't put that in your mouth. I, I put whatever I wanted in my mouth, and that included snails, <laughs> which my mom found out because I would come out from the backyard inside, and I was this little, like, two-year-old, and I had, like, snail shells uh, just stuck to my little cheeks. So she's like, well, <laughs> you, she's been out there eating snails again. But, 
she didn't think that, I mean there was nothing t- harmful about it so she didn't stop me that's pretty impressive <laughs> as a two-year-old yeah I know. I'm out of the shell. get a little get yeah. get some get some olive oil and some some salt but you guys have had escargot right can you describe that experience for those of us who have not partaken in the the, the snail food oh yeah sure um they're they're really tasty it's sort of like um uh, a slightly chewier oyster maybe um it, it, it's sort of almost like a or, or like squid like if you've ever had fried calamari, it can be a lot like that because you—they're usually, uh, especially in the escargot preparation, they're kind of like, kind of like sautéed in a lot of butter, yeah. Um, and uh, and they turn just kind of like chewy and uh, and but but a little bit tender, and they don't have a, a very strong flavor, especially once you've got all that butter and like garlic and parsley and stuff in there, but. Yeah, they're they're real good. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up like other shellfish because mollusks they are related to mollusks and they are related to squid in a sort of roundabout way. Uh, they are snails are gastropods, but they belong to the mollusk phylum, which does include things like cephalopods, squid, octopus, and other shelled shellfish. So it's not to say that that would necessarily make them taste similar to it, but I do think that is that is an interesting connection. Is there is there a reason why you don't eat escargot? I think, you know, it is interesting because you'd think that as somehow being a child who would just shove insect after insect in my mouth that I wouldn't be grossed out by it. But I think that was kind of my undoing. I remember when I was a little kid, I would collect snails as pets, and I didn't quite understand how to recreate their natural environment. So what would happen is they would die in large numbers, and the smell of these dead snails was very bad. So I think I don't associate dead snails with food, I associate it with existential horror as I realize that I am a bad little god and I have destroyed my citizens. So um, maybe that's why I don't. (laughs) But yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah. You're like, I've already killed my lifetime share of snails. (laughs) I I, I am destroyer of snail worlds. I'm already in the red when it comes to snail karma. So I'm not, (laughs) I'm not fiddling with those numbers anymore. But so there is another caterpillar who may have more crimes to answer for than me called the Hyposmacoma molluscivora. I sure I'm sure I pronounced that correctly, but it's a tiny oh, yeah. species of caterpillar from Hawaii. So this little caterpillar eventually metamorphosizes into a moth, but as caterpillars, they're little brats and they're pretty rude to snails. So these are case-bearing caterpillars, similar to bagworms, which means they spin themselves a shell out of their own silk. Now, have you ever seen these guys? They It looks like a little tube of assorted junk, like a kind of, it, it looks like a bunch of cobwebs kind of wrapped around in a tiny little tube, maybe some dirt and stuff on the outside. But then it kind of moves around and you look and then like a little worm or a little caterpillar pops out of it. And it's a really interesting way that these guys protect themselves. Yeah, I I, I like a lint armor essentially. Yes. <laughs> lint cool. armor. That's the yes. These are little <laughs> lint boys that like to wear lint armor. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they even decorate their little silk cases with snail shells, which will become even more grotesque as we go on here. So, not only are they snail wannabes, they also destroy snails. 
So they'll roll up to a snail and they start to use their sticky silk to trap the snail against the leaf. So, you know, snails are not too fast. So the poor snail is too slow to be able to escape, even though the net is just being woven around its shell in real time. So if you can imagine, you're just so slow that this this little caterpillar comes up with the set of knitting needles, not not really, but, you know, biological knitting needles, <laughs> starts to make a net and be like, oh, how's your day going? Yeah, I'm totally going to eat you. Would you would you turn to the right a little bit? Yep, that's right. There you go. <laughs> oh, no, it's like it's like it's like the, the quicksilver. But uh, but, <laughs> but you're just a snail. Yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> oh. It's kind of like if Psycho just happened really slow, like Psycho, but with sloths, <laughs> just like really slow. You see it coming, but there's not. Yeah. And, yeah. and you're both kind of like, you know. All right. Well, how, you know, it's, I'm about to murder you, but hey, did you see did you see the Mets game or whatever? <laughs> this is going to take a minute. So let's just get to know each other a little bit. Yeah. You know? Small I, talk. I feel like yeah, I feel like like slow murder small talk would be really awkward. Like maybe a little more awkward than regular yeah. uh, small talk. Although if you <laughs> with well, small talk, talk <laughs> so, well, sometimes, you know, I want to be murdered in small talk because death is preferable. <laughs> True. <laughs> so the caterpillar then uses that weird little body case that it has sewn to wedge open the snail shell opening like one of those tiny escargot forks. So I actually have an image of that you guys can look at. You can see the snail shell is tied down to the leaf with the sticky strands of silk. And then the caterpillar has lodged its weird uh, oblong uh, silk casing into the snail shell. And then that way it can just crawl right into that snail shell and like cornering it in its own home, which is pretty scary. And then it just yeah, that's, gets right in there and starts to eat the snail alive. That is so gnarly. That is like the very worst version of like the call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. I mean, love it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it is. We're pretty messed up, I think, as humans in terms of our food presentation. But I don't know if we're at the level of eating animals alive in their own homes. Like we don't like get a bird nest and then just start eating the birds. Not yet. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not not today. That's not something I've done. Or I mean, actually, I don't know. Is that going back to oysters? Isn't that sort of what we do? No, to you're right. You are we correct. Just crack open their houses. That's right. And when we serve, we, and when we serve snails, we do like take them out of their shells to cook them, but then we put them back in their shells to serve them. So it's like, well, I mean, that's just good, good, job, good presentation, humans. though. <laughs> gotta remember, gotta remember, this was a snail. God forbid we forget this is this is a slimy snail that used to crawl all over the ground and and eat bird poop and stuff like I would not find that appetizing without that snail shell. Come on, they're very pretty. That's true. That's true. We can't forget the presentation. You're right. Yeah, so it's interesting their shell is made the outside is made out of calcium carbonate, but the inside of the shell is it kind of has that a little bit of that pearlescent hue if you've ever looked at it. And that's because it's actually made out of nacre, which is the same material in mother of pearl shell. And uh, oh. that's secreted onto, onto pearls in oysters. 
which I think is really interesting. I don't think we think of snails as beautiful mother of pearl oysters, but they do, their shells are very similar in terms of their composition. Huh, I, I love a snail shell. I, uh, I think they're beautiful. Yeah, and bonus, I always feel like like Ursula the Sea Witch, yes. if I have yeah, any. Yeah, that's key in the whole thing. Right, <laughs> jewelry resembling that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, it doesn't give you the powers to sing like her. No, <laughs> I mean, not unless you go to the trouble of trapping a mermaid and getting her right. to sign a like devil deal with you. Right, now, it's a whole thing. With, it is. with Ariel, here's something that bothers me. All of her friends are... <laughs> Sea creatures. She's got a lobster, or sorry, is it a lobster? Crab? I think it's a crab, right? She's got crab, flounder. Right? Yeah, yeah. And in that musical number, oysters and, and clams are singing along. Now, her bra is made out of clam shells. <laughs> I feel mm-hmm. it'd be really awkward if she visited some of her friends and there's like, oh, have you met? Here, Here's Clyde the clam. It's like, oh, God, is that my grandmother's exoskeleton and it's just these this shell like whoop whoops see it's part of the storyline that wasn't really well explored but uh the the reason that all of those animals like ariel and that they all get along so well together is that they are all metal as fuck <laughs> and and so they really they, they really just love that like that like death metal kind of culture yeah it. yeah it is i do love the the whole when she's talking about being on earth with humans so that she may rend flesh from her her fellow fish and, and enjoy the food that is cooked from her friends. Yeah, that was, that was good. That was, a, that was a good movie. It's the ultimate revenge tale, really. Revenge just, tale? Like, I gotta get on land and then I'm gonna eat all of you. Like, like your dad's like, no, you can't go on land. It's like, I'll go on land, dad, and then I'll eat you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And maybe I'll cook you in another fish. That'll show <laughs> oh. you. I'll make make a dad duckin. <laughs> <laughs> We've gotten to the heart of the Little Mermaid. What it's really about. <laughs> Obviously, the invention of the fridge gave us a huge advantage when it came to storing leftovers. But humans have always found a way to make food last. From smokehouses to fermentation to salting, we've figured out ways to keep our food from going bad. Throughout human history, we've discovered how to store our food effectively, and it depended largely on your climate. In the frozen tundra, the world was your fridge, for better or worse, and you could store meat on the ice. In warmer climates, like the Middle East and Rome, you could dry out fruit and meat by baking them in the hot sun. One of the earliest recorded instances of stored food was found in Kesem Cave in Israel, dating back up to 420,000 years ago. The Paleolithic people there stored animal bones for snacking on later, like when they were up real late reading cave wall comics. Researchers determined these bones were leftovers due to the markings. Fresher bones are easier to scrape out the marrow, whereas older bones turn into marrow jerky, meaning there are more scratch and cutting marks on the bone. If you think eating bone marrow is weird, by the way, it's not. I've had it and it's delicious. Wait until we return. I think you'll be surprised. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. 
With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Some people and some creatures have pretty odd tastes when it comes to meals. So let's take a trip down to Imagination Station. You're a friendly little fish swimming along, maybe saying hi to Ariel, and suddenly you feel a bit of eye irritation. There's no visiting for fish, so you continue to swim along with your fishy business, but you start to feel kind of lazy and sluggish. You just want to slow down, not move too much. You take a bunch of lazy days. This all works out fine for you for a while. In fact, you seem to attract fewer predators. Great. But then something changes inside you like a switch has been flipped. Now you've got a fierce case of the wiggles. You want nothing more than to splash around, swimming wantonly, dancing, and not caring who notices. Well, whoops, maybe you care a little bit because you see a huge bird flying down towards the surface of the water. You pause, freaked out, trying to stay still so the bird won't see you. But then that urge to wiggle around, to dance, you just can't help it, you gotta move around. Well, the bird eats you. The end. So, that, guys, that is the end of your story, but it is just another part of the fish eye flukes life cycle. This is part of the episode that we're going to get a little gross, I guess. <laughs> so, how do you guys feel about parasites? 
<laughs> you know, I'm going to be honest. They make me a little nervous. Mm. Yeah, I'm of of all the things that I'm not squicked out by, I think that anything that crawls into your body and makes a home there uh, that's larger than like a bacterium mm-hmm. yeah. really freaks me out. Yeah. Well, yeah. bad news uh, for you because... Uh, <laughs> We're about to talk about the eye fluke, which is a parasitic flatworm. There's a specific species called Diplostomum pseudopathosium, which, uh, again, I'm sure I pronounced that well. I'm a champion at Latin. (laughs) Now, that name sounds bad, and they are if you are a freshwater fish. So basically, these eye flukes will swim around until they find an unlucky fish, which is often a rainbow trout. Then they will infect their eyes. So the eye fluke pierces the fish's skin, then swims up through the body to find real estate in its eyeballs. Because it's location, location, location. Am I right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, great, great views, right? Hey. Hey. (laughs) A great waterfront property. Uh, (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, did I mention that my other squick is eye stuff? That's great. Oh, yeah. It's terrific, too. You guys haven't ever eaten, eaten eyeballs? Um. I have not to my personal Oh actually I mean I guess I've had like like whole like like shrimp or or um those crickets. That's true. So so you've eaten like yeah. It's kind of been a package deal for you with with eyeballs. Uh yeah, I I've uh, eaten a fish eye before at the behest of my friend who told me it was very good and it was fine. It tasted pretty salty. Now I don't know if that's cuz they salted it a lot. But I don't know. I, I think it's a little bit there's something psychologically a problem for me with that because it's like I'm <laughs> eyes are a window into the soul and then I'm eating that window and it just kind of doesn't work for me mentally speaking. Yeah, no, I don't want it. <laughs> it is a strange thing to to eat an eye. I guess it's kind of like an ultimate power move. Yeah. Like what if the it, 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 what if the chicken and the turducken was just filled with eyes? Oh, oh yeah. why and would you say that? You can. <laughs> it's a monster. You're the one who brought up eyeballs, okay? <laughs> right. I, I, with I what I've up, got. I brought up eating eyeballs. I didn't bring up filling a turkey, like making a turkey pinata, but it's filled with eyeballs. Good Lord. I thought I was. That's the stuff of nightmares. Yeah, I thought I was the horror master here. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so the the fisheye fluke has a pretty good reason for being in the eye. So the eyeball doesn't contain much blood. So there's no immune response to the parasite. So it can happily swim around in there absorbing nutrients and just kind of hang out in the eyeball as long as it dang well pleases. Recent research suggests that not only is the eye fluke making a cozy little cottage out of the fish eye, but it's actually altering the fish's behavior. So this is something we've talked about before on the show where a parasite will manipulate its host by interfering with its brain chemistry. So have you guys ever heard of T. gondii? Is that... Is that the toxoplasmosis? It, no. Or the or the fungus with the ants? You're you're We've on the right track. Things. It's the it's the 
It's the parasite that infects rats and makes them lose their fear of cats. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. yeah that's freaky. <laughs> Sometimes the way that they influence the host's behavior is mysterious. Like, I'm not sure that we know how the eye fluke does this. This is pretty recent research. But let's say that it does some kind of, maybe it releases some kind of chemical that interacts with the fish's brain and causes some malfunctions. Now, I don't know this. I'm kind of I'm kind of winging it because I don't think we've I don't think science has determined exactly how the eye fluke controls these fish. But that is one of the mechanisms that these parasites can use. So the eye fluke influences the fish to at first swim more sluggishly. Now, as listeners of the show might know, often the parasites mo is to make the host look as noticeable as possible because often these parasites have the goal of winding up in the stomach of a predator like in the stomach of a cat or in a bird and while that's true these eye flukes kind of have finessed it a bit because when they're juveniles they're still developing in the fish eye they don't want to get eaten yet because they're just not ready they're not ready for that commitment yeah Mm -hmm. they will make the fish swim slower, more sluggishly, so it isn't targeted by predators. And then later in the iFluke's lifestyle, when it's an adult, it's single, it's ready to mingle, then that's when it kicks into high gear and makes the fish just wiggle around like crazy. It makes the fish want to swim closer to the surface, to swim more actively. And normally when a bird attacks a fish, the fish's response is to freeze to try to reduce its visibility. And but the infected fish will very quickly start to dance around again, swim around again. So it makes it really easy for the birds to just scoop that right up. And at that point, the the eye fluke in the fish will escape into the bird's gut. And that's where it has its singles bar speed dating night and mates and the reproductive cycle begins anew. (laughs) Well, well, that is quite the the method. Yeah, I guess when you don't have Tinder, um, yeah. you know, you have to figure out your own way to do stuff. Sure. You have Fender. Sure. It's a fish joke. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, wow. That is... Uh... <laughs> When you when, when you get an ow, oh wow from Annie about a pun, I feel like you just won. Yeah. You, you won like the whole month. You you yeah. I have so much respect right now. I don't know what to do with it. I could only aspire to make a good as good a pun as that. There's a, even another step in their weird life cycle. So once they've reproduced, their young escapes out of the bird into the bird poop. And that bird poop then gets eaten by snails. And then the snails, when these are aquatic freshwater snails, uh, they will be in the water and then they will escape out of the snails and then swim over to a fish. So it's a complicated life process, a lot lot of steps. I think it's kind of a way for these eye flukes to sort of feel... You know, they're like constantly at a midlife crisis, no matter at what point of their life cycle they are at. Like, I got to do something. I got to get myself a new ride. I'm going to get a snail. And it's like, "Mm, no, I'm going to get myself a new ride. I'm going to get myself a fish eye. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, you're traveling. You're trying new things. Right. Having new experiences. Uh, They're really constantly pushing yourself. Yeah. Doing it for the Insta. (laughs) So that's yeah. <laughs> that's great. That's uh, that's uh, this is so sure. gnarly. 
totally. I love it. Trying new food, new home. I, I do feel I do sympathize with these these eye flukes a little bit. I think one of the ways I feel like I can reinvent myself is to try just a slightly different food. Nothing way outside my comfort zone, not like a big bowl of mayonnaise, but you know, a, a slight, like maybe, maybe a little bit of a spicier food. And then I feel more worldly, even if it's just down the street from my apartment. I'm like, I've done a thing. I've, I've discovered a new food. And then I somehow feel accomplished, even though I, I didn't do anything. Feel more alive. Yeah, no, you did something. You, you went out and found something. Mm-hmm. And I put it in my I'm mouth. I'm not going to say discovered. And I ate it. And you, yeah. And yeah. it was a bit different than normal. <laughs> <laughs> That is why do you guys oh, think gosh. that is so satisfying to you discover new food and you it's like there's a certain conquest in putting something new in your mouth and it's like I have made this mine. What what do you think that is? I think for me there's a um I have a weird thing I call it collecting experiences where I'm a very much I want to try as much as I can. So I think if I discover something that to me I've never had anything like it before. It's very exciting. Yeah. Um, and my, my mouth is like, woo, what's this? I've never <laughs> had this combination of flavors and textures. This is great. And I feel like my brain gets really excited about it. Like, oh, you've got to find other things like this. And there's just something about the, for me, excitement of it of finding something I really like that's got set off a, a new experience for me. Oh, absolutely. And I think that there's I think that there's some brain chemicals that get set off uh, when when you do try a, a new combination of textures or, or flavors that your, your brain is like, well, is it danger? Is it cool? And uh, which is really basically the same emotion, according to our brains. And, I mean, you know, there's also chemicals involved in the nostalgia of eating something the same, but um, or, yeah. or, or similar to something that you've had a long time ago. We did an episode on that, but uh yeah yeah no no the the definitely it's 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 a it's a thrill yeah well i love adrenaline yeah it's like i'm trying to find it wherever i can get it (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's the safe risk taking like i'm not gonna go go cliff jumping but i may put something in my mouth that i'm not sure is gonna create a good situation with my stomach but gosh darn it i'll try I like that. I'm going to start thinking of trying new things with with food as cliff jumping. Right. Here we go. Right. Here we go. Yeah. You know, saddle up. Like saddle up, intestines. We're going on a ride, I think. <laughs> Here's hoping it's a good one. <laughs> much, much safer than like, than, yeah, than like, a, a, I don't know, buying a motorcycle or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's an adventure in your mouth, in your stomach, and possibly other bathroom times that we'll not discuss. (laughs) So there's another parasite that likes to eat eyeballs. If you you guys thought we had escaped the eyeball eating conversation, uh, oh, I'm sorry, but no, we're back. (laughs) Now, this this is a slightly different parasite, and it specifically likes to eat the eyeballs of sharks and a specific type of shark called the sleeper shark. And these are a group of sharks that are slow-moving, deep-sea. They look like ancient, prehistoric creatures. And they are, actually, in fact. So we've talked about the Greenland shark on the show before. They're these really huge sharks and they're very slow. They are carnivorous, but they have a really slow metabolism so they don't have to move very fast and they basically just sneak up on their prey and then by the time the prey realizes it's surrounded by teeth, it's too late. 
And but that is not the horrifying thing we're talking about today. The horrifying thing we're talking about is called Omatacoita elongata, which is a copepod, uh, a type of crustacean. And it's this pink worm-like creature that grows about an inch long and it likes to attach itself to the corneas of these sleeper sharks and it slowly eats away at that juicy shark eye. Ooh, okay. That's uncool. I'm just going to go ahead and say that's not chill. <laughs> no one should do that. Yeah. And you've and you've sent us pictures I did. and it's and it's yeah, this like little worm-like thing just like just like dangling out of the eyeball of this poor kind of derpy looking shark. <laughs> yeah, I feel a lot of sympathy for these sleeper sharks and the Greenland shark. I think I I like them. I think they're cool little guys. They're not little. They're actually huge, huge sharks, but they're, they have an overall pretty chill personality. They aren't super aggressive. They do eat other fish and things, but basically they just all, the rest of the time when they're not killing, they're, they're pretty chill. They're slow moving and they, yeah, that these little stinkers, these little eyeball-eating crustaceans get on their eyes. And because the shark doesn't, I mean, the shark doesn't have hands, can't do anything about it. It just seems kind of mean. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess the copepod is just, you know, it's just trying to eat. It's just trying to make a living. <laughs> it doesn't know any better. It's like it's know. like in the Flintstones, those animals like the 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 copepod like looks at the camera and is like, it's a living. <laughs> Time to eat the eyeballs. Yep, like another day in the eyeball, the shark eyeball mines. <laughs> oh no! It also reminds me of the times throughout history, humanity has really latched on to some weird fashion. Mm. Oh, yeah. So I wonder if in the shark world this was ever like fashionable to have the worm. It's sort of like a monocle, yeah. Hanging out of your eye. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. The psyches of sharks. <laughs> we'll never know for sure. Yeah. And I mean, it, it damages their vision. So maybe like if they have any mirrors down there, the sharks look at it and it's like, I look pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> look at me. Looking good. I'm kind of a blurry mm -hmm. blob, but I assume I'm quite attractive with these eye dangles. Just little eye tassels. <laughs> oh, eye tassels. Oh, no. <laughs> so then when, when they roll their eyes, like say something sarcastic, and roll their eyes, they get a nice sort of like pendulum movement with, with the eye tassels. Yeah, that's actually kind yeah. of festive. Yeah, yeah, shark burlesque. This is great. <laughs> shark <Yeah>. burlesque. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, we, we know it goes on because of the little mermaid we've already established. <laughs> the shark's wearing sexy sunglasses and it comes in, it's like dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and then it just like takes off the glasses and it's the shark, the eye tassels. Yeah. Sexy, hot, yeah. cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, the the sharks don't necessarily mind it that much. I mean, we don't know how they feel. They may mind it a hell of a lot, but it doesn't affect their survival too badly. So they, oh. they don't rely on their eyesight too heavily to hunt. So they are, function pretty well, even with these eye dangles going on. And there's actually an unproven theory that O. elongata, these copepods, have a mutualistic relationship with the sharks they attach to because they have a bioluminescence. And 
the the theory is that the bioluminescence actually helps attract prey towards the shark. So the shark, as we know, who is kind of a lazy Garfield-like character who doesn't really want to work too hard for his food, just opens his mouth and chomps on anything foolish enough to approach its glowing eye tassels. But that theory is not proven. I do. I am fond of that theory. I really do want it to be true. So I hope they discover that, yes, these burlesque sharks have neon glowing <laughs> eye tassels that prey just finds irresistible. I want that to be true as well. Yeah. yeah. I think that if you're going to have to have an eye tassel, it better be working for you. So. Yeah. <laughs> it better be, you better be getting something out of that relationship. Yeah. You need eye tassels to make eye tassels. And then you use those eye tassels to make money. <laughs> and I like the idea of some poor, unsuspecting prey just like, ooh, pretty shiny. Thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that happens a yeah. lot in the in deep sea areas because you have so little light. And bioluminescence mm-hmm. is this chemical reaction that happens with bacteria that a lot of animals have adopted. And so if you're an, a deep sea anglerfish, if you're a, a deep sea octopus, you can use that bioluminescence both to attract prey as a defensive mechanism to make yourself seem bigger. Uh, It's a really handy tool when you're down there and you're in the dark and there's very little visual information other than this bioluminescence. So yeah, eye tassels for everybody. (laughs) We've really come full circle. (laughs) (laughs) So I know you guys are probably wondering, hey, can my eyeballs get eaten by tiny, horrible creatures? You know, that had occurred to me. (laughs) Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, bad news. The answer is yes, uh, and it is, th- but it is not quite as horrifying as a huge worm dangling from your cornea. It is pretty horrifying, though. So, there are in fact eye amoebas that infect human eyes. So these are tiny microscopic organisms that love to eat human eyeballs. The acanthamoeba is the little stinker who likes to infect and feed on human corneas. And this condition is known as acanthamoeba keratitis. It can even cause blindness if not treated. It's very rare. So for the most part, you don't have to worry about it. But if you wear contact lenses, do either of you wear contact lenses? Nope. Nope. Aha. Yeah, neither do I. I uh, I stick to glasses, and I'm glad I do because contact lens users have to be careful with how they store and wash their lenses because they're at a higher risk of getting infected by the acanthamoeba. So, if you do wear contact lenses, don't. I'm not saying rip them out of your eyeballs right now. Especially don't rip them out. <laughs> but uh, you're you're well, okay. No. <laughs> don't don't panic. You just have to remember that you should not ever use tap water to clean the lenses. You shouldn't wear your contacts while showering, swimming, or using a hot tub because that can increase your risk of infection. Because what happens is that contact lenses provide a nice surface for the amoeba to latch onto. And so normally they would kind of maybe just get flushed out of the eye. But with the contact lenses, they just, they have a little, like it's a little uh, restaurant for them to sit at. And then they can hang out and multiply and eat your cornea. It's a cornea copia. <laughs> Get it? Oh. <laughs> eyeball joke. I feel like this is some personal, <laughs> full of eyeball jokes, <laughs> kind of personal punishment for us. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're going to tell you about this thing that can eat your eye. I used to wear contacts, and I'm nervous for my past self. Oh, well, you seem to have gotten through it okay. I was very not good oh. about taking care of my contacts. I, I like, found another 
I was putting in one and then another one popped out and it was like completely hard and I have no idea how long. I've been oh, no. It. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Just, I mean, that well, does happen. Like people will you'll forget that you're wearing one and then you put another one on and it, it can be bad. You got to be careful. And I would uh, suggest for all you you cosplayers out there, be very careful with the the sort of cosplaying lenses, the decorative lenses. You should you're at a much greater risk of getting an eye infection from those as well. So I, I would advise. Generally, I would advise against it, honestly. But if you're going to go with it, I would go get them from a reputable like ophthalmologist. Yeah, like from a professional and not just the internet. Yeah. Mm, I read yeah. a story of someone who got this amoeba infection by getting cool cat eye contact lenses from a swap meet. So don't do that. Oh no. <laughs> don't don't get never swap contact lenses. No, don't get don't get <laughs> oh. contact lenses from a flea market is my advice is... to you. That's not a secondhand item. Gosh, like I'm, I'm, I'm weirded out by well, secondhand shoes. Well, no, of course shoes. it's not a like, secondhand <laughs> item. It's a second eye item. Oh, oh. <laughs> you set yourself up for uh, that one, Lauren. Yeah, you fell right into that one. <laughs> <laughs> should have seen it coming. Really should have. Hey. Ah. Oh no. Oof. Oh Oof. no. The puns. <laughs> and there goes my audience. They're gone now. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they stuck with you through the, the eye, <laughs> I think they are good. Then. They're good with parasites. I don't know about puns. I don't know. <laughs> mm. oh. yeah. Well, you'll find out. Yeah, this is the time. Maybe I can win them back with some civet poop. So now I want to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to <laughs> talk about Asian civets, and this is a. I, I want. It's the capstone to our food-related podcast because it's both about their eating habits and our weird eating habits when it comes to their poop. So Asian civets are a small cat-like animal that is actually more closely related to a binturong than a cat. Now, for those of you wondering what a binturong is, I actually have talked about it on the show before. Our weird anatomy episode, I think it's actually called Nature You're Drunk, but uh, it's, <laughs> so this is a, the binturong looks like a Dr. Seuss fluffy cat and it actually smells like popcorn because of some anal glands. It's a pretty interesting animal, but yeah, it's related to this civet and the Asian civet is much, it's a little guy. I, I, you guys see that picture of it. It's like, it looks, it is similar to a kitty, but it's kind of like if you crossed a cat with like a red panda or something. It's like an even cuter raccoon. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And they live in South and Southeast Asian forests. They're omnivorous, but they love to drink palm flower sap and they eat fresh coffee beans. So they're also known as the toddy cat, despite not, they are not a feline, they're not a cat, but you know, back when we were naming these animals, we didn't know. (laughs) So palm sap tappers would collect palm sap to ferment into palm wine, which is a type of alcoholic beverage. And there are stories of these palm civets getting drunk on the pots of fermenting palm sap. So then they got the name Toddy Cat because Toddy is the also the name of the palm wine. Uh, I, have you ever had like a hot toddy? It's like that sort of Swedish or not Swedish, but that sort of sweet alcoholic drink. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's similar, yeah, delicious. similar to that. So, yeah, the, these civets would would get get drunk and it, it's uh 
I think it's kind of another terrible influence that humans have had on animals is now we're now we're a bad influence and in getting them getting them drunk and having them go out on parties. It's it's terrible. You know, um, it's not. Hey, like we want to have a good time. They want to have a good time. Like we're we're just providing. We're providers of the good time. Yeah, that's uh, if that sounds like you're trying to evade responsibility for leading these, these <laughs> civets down a dark path. <laughs> hey, uh, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> we always say drink responsibly. <laughs> I've never personally gone up to a civet and been like, shots, shots, shots. So I, I feel okay. So she right. says. <laughs> I mean, that's oddly specific. So I feel like maybe you have. So, um. <laughs> oh, yeah, the lady doth protest too much. <laughs> so as you guys may know, we actually do eat civet poop in the form of coffee. And it is called Kopi Luwak. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And it is made out of coffee beans collected from civet poop. Now, apparently, the civet's digestive system ferments the beans so that they come out tasty in their poops. And there are also claims that the civet will choose the best beans to eat, so they poop out the most premium of coffee beans like like premium selection in this civet turd. Ah, I see. Wow. So so okay, I've I've been wondering about this actually. Like is it is this chill for the civets? Like are they happy doing this? Well, so this is the sad part of the story. It is if we just picked up their poop after they left it in the forest, that would probably be fine. I mean, as long as we, there was some, obviously, if we collected all the poop, I think that would be bad for the coffee plants because then that would reduce their ability to spread their seed. In fact, civets are really great at spreading the seeds of various plants and trees because they eat a lot of, eat a lot of berries and things with seeds in it. And then they go and poop somewhere else. And that, that is great for the, the forest. But yeah, I mean, if we if we just collected some poop occasionally, I think that would be okay. Unfortunately, we're humans, so of course we don't stop at that. Because of the popularity of Kopi Luwak, it is becoming a big problem for the civets. Civets are being trapped and kept in cages, and they're being fed coffee beans just so they'll poop it out. So it's, uh, you know, they're being farmed in a way that I think is really not good. It's very bad for the civets. It's bad for their populations. It, we don't really know what effect this has on their natural populations, but it's not going to be good. And their living conditions are not good either. So I would say oh. as tempting as it is to eat civet poop coffee, I wouldn't do it because of the problem of the sourcing and these these not not very good practices. I have so many mixed feelings about this. I, you know, it's it's I do like trying new things. It's a shame that I shouldn't try that, but I don't know exactly how upset I can be about being like, well, not that poop. <laughs> just not going to eat, just not going to eat that poop. It is it yeah. is a big conflict because on the one hand, uh, the opportunity to drink poop and pay a huge, it's very expensive. So you're paying a huge amount for poop coffee. I would love that. That's living my best life. If I were, if I was a rich person, you bet I'd be paying thousands of dollars to drink poop coffee. But of course, 
the moral aspect, I, I can't, I couldn't bring myself to do it. Like, I think the idea of just, just kind of picking up maybe with a doggy poop bag, some of the civet poop and harvesting the beans, that's pretty charming. But obviously, the reality is very different. <laughs> yeah, 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 I would agree. I would agree. I mean, and everybody poops. Uh, that's true. Yeah. And, you know, I, we, we talk about bacteria poop and yeast poop all the time on the show. But usually, usually that's like the, the, the micro poop is the only poop we get to talk about. So this is this is fun. It's a refreshing what you change. talk about. Yeah. You talk about like the sort of fecal material that gets everywhere. Oh, uh, no, j- just about like a just about um, uh, fermentation of, of any kind. It's really, you know, what you're oh, talking about. Bacteria, you're talking about bacteria poop, eating yeah. stuff. Yeah, bacteria poop. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're yeah, drinking. Yeah. Poop. I mean, we're drinking we're drinking bacteria poop when we drink wine. Exactly. Sure. And it's delicious. I mean, mm-hmm. bacteria poop makes everything better. I mean, aren't the civets kind of hypocrites because they're drinking fermented palm juice? So they're drinking bacteria poop, but we can't drink the civets poop? I mean, ridiculous. <laughs> double standards. <laughs> they really need to fight for their better treatment so that we can drink their poop. That's true. Yeah. That's true. I feel like <laughs> we'll put it on the civet. <laughs> yeah, free range, free range poop, uh, cage free, free range <laughs> civet poop. Yeah, I, I think it's unfortunately it's probably pretty difficult to source the poop. I don't know how you would determine whether this was humanely collected poop or not. So I would, if you're worried about the 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 humaneness of it, I would probably just avoid it. I mean, it is incredibly expensive, anyways. So <laughs> it's kind of sad because it's it's one of those things that at first it's kind of charming, like oh, you know, drinking drinking weird civet poop as a fancy drink that's fun but then it's like oh of course we have to be crappy about it not I, oh. that was i didn't mean that as a pun that was <laughs> i wasn't trying to make a pun that- out of a terrible situation <laughs> <laughs> okay well, maybe it was a little bit so sue me <laughs> yeah sue you get, get get that important civet poop money um, no, no, no 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 from big no. civets yeah that system <laughs> Oh, God. Well, so I just, uh, before we go, there's like a couple of news items I wanted to really briefly talk about. Apparently, baby T-Rexes were fuzzy little turkey-sized monsters, which I love. There's new fossil evidence that indicates that they had this little fluffy layer of feathers sort of down like feathers and then that they are were about the size of a turkey that is that sounds so cute and no less terrifying than a normal regular t-rex which is pretty <laughs> i thought you were gonna say no less terrifying than a normal regular turkey which would also be accurate oh no absolutely no i don't like birds okay i realized that i had a bird hater on this show just you you get out of here <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a bird hater. I, I'm just a bird respecter. Okay. I'm, a, I'm a bird you fear, go over okay, there. I see. You fear the power of birds. That's appropriate. They will. I do. They will. I mean, the bird revolution is nigh. It's imminent. You are wise to respect the authority of birds. Okay. No, no. We're, we're cool now. That's fine. Oh, yeah. No, no. Like, they, they want to eat your eyeballs and... They can fly and they're dinosaurs. And yes. I don't like that combination of things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder, though, if if we lived. It, OK, if if we had dinosaurs, right, if we had a Jurassic Park, there's zero percent chance that we wouldn't do a, a T-Rex ducking. Right. Like we would do do a Tyrannosaurus ducking. 
just start shoving oh, ever yeah. smaller dinosaurs inside of the T-Rex. Yeah. yeah, no, we would. It's true. We would, and I, I just don't think it tastes good, but it wouldn't be about the taste. It wouldn't be about the taste. It would be about teaching the dinosaurs a lesson. Like, look, you try to yeah, eat right. any more of our amusement park visitors, look what's going to happen to you. You're going to become an abomination of solid dino meat. Yeah, we're, we're, we're like showing them the menu, like pointing at it <laughs> very emphatically. Like, that could be you. Yes, with yeah. their big margaritas in hand. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, maybe that's kind of... That sounds about right. Maybe that's... I guess that's sort of what we've done. We talked about that last week on the episode. I, I talked about the domestication of, of turkeys and chickens. And in a way, it is it is kind of... I think we are trying to humiliate dinosaurs to kind of let them know, like, never try again to own this planet because we will humiliate you by turning you into really fluffy chickens. <laughs> Wow, echoes across time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, if any of them ever have a time machine, they're they're going to flash forward to now and go like, oh, no, we better keep in line. I feel like that's a turtles in time. It's, it's coming <laughs> for sure. Um, I was also thinking, I don't know if this is true, but when I was in Australia, there's a saying pissed as a parrot, which meant drunk as a parrot because parrots would get drunk on oh. fermented berries and you would see them just kind of flying around crashing into things and yeah. shouting weird weird stuff so <laughs> that, that's kind of like <laughs> yeah the 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 drunk bird they, they're trying to deal with the the ramifications yeah of yeah the turducken mm-hmm. they actually have so and, this is it's a common thing where they have bird drunk tanks because a lot of birds get drunk off of fermented berries and there's like, especially in Canada, they have a lot of these winter birds that in the winter, the berries freeze and, but the birds still eat them, but they've fermented. And so they <laughs> try to rescue these drunk birds and hold them in these, the bird drunk tanks until they feel better so they can be released. <laughs> oh no. Sober up birds. <laughs> See, see, I'm not that was there's no peer pressure there. I'm not responsible for that. You cannot blame me for the natural process of fermentation. <laughs> the civet thing, maybe, but you're like, you're but like, but I'm like not out sneaking up behind a wax wing and just going shots, 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 shots. <laughs> I'm on to you. Oh, my, that's just gonna make my secret that's life just revealed. Gonna, the problem is that's just gonna make the bird revolution come more swiftly and more angrily. So yes. you know, really, we're writing our own our own history here. That's true. <laughs> it's true. Well, thank you so much for joining me, ladies. Uh, I love I love your podcast. I think especially around the holidays, it's a great listen because it talks about the culture of food. And do you want to talk a little bit about how you guys, why you guys are interested in talking about food and our culinary habits? Uh, sure. Um, I think one of the things we really enjoy is that we all have to eat. And there's this very powerful sense of connection and shared culture and history. And when you stop and think about I don't know if you're eating something that you just never pause to wonder, how did this get here? And, and why do we eat it this way? Yeah. And like the, just the traditions around it and the, the, the stories behind it, um, we find 
and fascinating. Yeah, and also the, the science is really cool. Um, just the way that plants work and the way that animals work and, and how they grow and um, how, you know, what they eat and how they can feed us. Um, and so th this has been a real treat because like usually we're like, oh, okay, like look at this cute monkey. Here's what it tastes like. And it's, <laughs> it, can, it can get real weird real fast. Like, yeah, so, so some, yeah. talking about animals and not talking about eating all of them has been really cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. a lot of times we have to be like, Look, we, we're a food podcast. We want to talk about snail sex all the time, but we've got to move on. Um, so, yeah, this has been really wonderful. Well, it's been lovely having you guys. So, again, you guys can check out Annie and Lauren on Savor Podcast. It's also here on the, the How Stuff Works iHeartMedia Network. So it's been great to talk to you. And is there anything else you guys want to plug, like any social media people can follow you on? Oh, sure. Uh, our website is uh, is saverpod.com, and we are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at saverpod. We do hope to hear from you. Yeah. <laughs> and you can find us on the internet, creaturefeaturepod.com, creaturefeaturepod on Instagram. It's mostly pictures of my dog. Creaturefeetpod on Twitter. That's F-E-A-T, F-E-E-T is something very different. And you can find me, as always, at Katie Golden on Twitter. I'm also at ProBirdRights, where I fight for the rights of birds to take over humanity and get the world back on track. So, uh, you, yeah, you, you really done goofed when you revealed your anti-bird propaganda there. <laughs> oh, oof. Uh, you yeah. show yourself out, Lauren. <laughs> yep, I'll, I'll just quietly leave. <laughs> Thanks to the Space Cossacks for their super spooktacular song, Exolumina. Creature Feature is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. See you next Wednesday. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place 
for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 